This season of Life on a Plate is sponsored by Bellazoo, the amazing suppliers of Mediterranean and Middle Eastern ingredients. Their range includes premium olive oils and vinegars, pestos, pastes, and preserved lemons. And if you haven't yet tried their signature Rosa Rissa, which is a staple in my fridge, then you are in for a treat. Bellazoo started 30 years ago when two friends, George and Adam, drove a van full of olives back from France. They began supplying chefs, then home cooks, and have never looked back. Bellazoo ingredients are restaurant quality, and I've genuinely been a fan for a very long time. Their tahini from Nablus has a very special place in my kitchen shelf. It's so nutty and flavoursome. Their ingredients are such a simple way to enhance other flavours, and they transform any dish. Bellazoo source and develop their products very carefully, without compromising on quality, and have gone above and beyond in their commitment to the environment and to looking after their suppliers. To find out more, go to waitrose.com forward slash Bellazoo to discover the range for yourself. I'm Yasmin Khan, and you're listening to Life on a Plate, the podcast from Waitrose. Throughout the season, my co-host, Alison Okavy and I are going to be talking to a range of fantastic guests from many walks of life and asking them to share their stories through the food memories, dishes and ingredients that mean the most to them. Alison, hello. Hi, Yasmin. How are you doing? I'm really good. Uh, very excited to be back for episode two of Life on a Plate. Good. I'm excited too. I'm really looking forward to uh, talking to our guest today. But before we do that, I want to know what you've been eating. What have you been cooking? Well, as the weather's been turning, I have been moving towards soups, which are actually my favourite food. And I often say maybe one day I will write a soup cookbook because honestly, I could eat them for three meals a day. So <laughs> in my veg box last week, I had a beautiful big cauliflower. And one of my favourite soups is this roasted cauliflower soup Ooh. with lots of cumin mm. and coriander and turmeric and potato. And I, I roast the florets as well as the leaves. And so it got, it's got, mm. and I kind of use some of those on top as a bit of decoration. And oh, nice. it's just, yeah, my favourite. So that's what I've been enjoying this week. Yeah. What about you? What have you been cooking? Well, I like to get ahead and I like to batch cooking. It's this time of year. I have done a, a massive batch of Christmas cakes. Excellent. So that before the, the madness of November and December starts, that has been ticked off my list. And it's quite a few Christmas presents done as well. How many do you make? Twelve. Twelve? You're joking. <laughs> No. Wow, that is so impressive. So do you just do it like over one day or? I usually do it over a couple of days because they take such a long time in the oven. But I weigh out all the ingredients and uh, have all the fruit soaking on the same day. And with all the brandy in the kitchen, it does smell quite pungent. Oh, that sounds amazing. amazing. I'm going to have to hit you up for that recipe after <laughs> after this conversation, because today, of course, we um, have you know, had the wonderful experience, didn't we, of speaking to two veterans of, of broadcasting. And it was kind of like the tables were turned this week, because mm. the two guests that we were interviewing are two women with 
decades of broadcast experience between them. That's right. Their work runs the whole gamut from deeply serious to really hilarious. We have Fee and Jane. That's Jane Garvey, who is was one of the main voices on Women's Hour um, for 13 years until the end of last year. And Fee Glover, who's another Radio 4 main voice that many people will recognise from the Listening Project. She's also been a regular writer on Waitrose Weekend since we started. But together, they host the phenomenally successful podcast, Fortunately, in which they talk to celebs about all kinds of topics and diverse themes. They're just very funny. I mean, they are so naturally funny. I really had to up my joke game (laughs) for this episode. Um, But what I loved about our conversation the most, I think, is not only do they have this really unique ability to just get to the heart of any topic in a really human and sharp way, they're also... These two inspiring, strong women in their 50s, unapologetically themselves. And you just don't get to hear that that often. They don't. And just so honest and brave just to say what they think, which is just a really refreshing listen. Absolutely. I was also really glad when they both opened up about their views on women's equal pay and how that's been dealt with and reported. It was fascinating. There was so much to learn, but it was serious. But as well as we had some lighthearted moments reminiscing about what they ate in their childhood and how they navigate the likes and dislikes of their teenage kids. Absolutely. So shall we begin then? Yes. So here is our conversation with Fee Glover and Jane Garvey. Fee and Jane, thank you so much for joining us on Life on a Plate. Hello, hello. Very nice to meet you both. Hi, Yasmin. Hello, Alison. Before we begin, I've got a bit of a confession, actually. We've been kind of, you know, prepping, as you know what it's like, prepping for a podcast. You know, we've got Jane and Fee on. And we both realised that we're a little bit nervous for this one because we are interviewing two people who are you know, famous for their like extraordinary interviews and podcasts and veterans of broadcasting. So before we begin, I wanted to ask you if you've got any tips for us, because we've just started doing this as a, as a double act. This is actually one of our very first recordings together. First tip, I didn't like veteran very much. How did you feel about that, Fee? <laughs> I assumed that I assumed that was directed at you, oh, so it probably. just completely yeah. passed over me. Not veterans. <laughs> that would be right. Do you know what? I think there is only one tip, which is listen. So I'd agree with that uh, entirely, but I'd also say, uh, because it's a podcast, the joy of podcasting sometimes is that you just say what pops into your head, don't you? That's what makes it different. That's what makes it more bouncy. That's what's made podcasting really successful. So, you know, that filter that you might have for broadcasting, which is a kind of different thing. I think the joy that we've found is to allow those questions in that normally would have a portcullis in front of them. You know, when the microphone goes on and you'll be thinking, no, I shouldn't say that. But I think the joy of this is that you can. So we're prepared, ladies. Mm. And and do you like being interviewed? I mean, how do you find the process? Do you find that it's hard to switch from being interviewer to interviewee? I think it is a little bit of a gear change. And certainly with the book that Jane and I have written together, I think we... We've done quite a few interviews so far and we've got that double whammy of suddenly being 
together as well. So there's all kinds of new stuff that's entered into the fray. And I did notice actually, um, and I don't know whether you picked up on this too, Jane, but I think the interviews that we have done so far, you and I have both asked questions of the interviewer to the interviewer's mild surprise. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. I'm, I'm not sure that we've kind of learned how to do it, actually. No. I'm not sure we are very good interviewees because, <laughs> no. um, to be fair, I think we both do have a natural curiosity and we are interested in other people. And actually going back to the whole tips thing, I think it's just about showing a, a decent level of interest in the way somebody else's life has panned out. Um, so many, there's always so many things you can ask people and how many, so many different avenues you can go down. Absolutely. And I guess the trick is with two talented women like you um, wondering where to start. But we're going to start with talking about your brand new book, which is called Did I Say That Out Loud? Why don't you tell us a bit about why you wrote it and what it's about? So we do a podcast together that we started doing uh, 203 episodes ago, which by our rudimentary key stage maths identifies that as being about four years ago. Um, And we didn't really know where that podcast was heading when Mm -hmm. we started. And it's turned out to have uh, captured the imagination of quite a lot of subscribers. Jane and I think it did well. Uh, you know, not because we've got amazing brains or a brilliant intellectual take on the world, but because we're two women talking about things that women talk about in a way that women discuss things. So that's what we've carried on doing. It's been a really wonderful thing to be part of. And we were approached to write a book that simply carried on doing the same thing. So it really is a book about the stuff, as the title says, did I say it out loud? The stuff that floats around in our brains that sometimes you think you shouldn't have said or that you couldn't say, uh, but it's actually important stuff. It's not just kind of fluffy nonsense. Uh, It's stuff that it turns out quite a lot of other women and some men are thinking about too. Does that sum it up, Jane? I think so. It's a book to, to curl up with and to, to read in, in bite-sized chunks and think, oh, yeah, actually, that happened to me. Or, no, I totally disagree with what she said there. Or whatever it might be. And we've both been both been pretty honest about our lives and the way they've panned out and the, the challenges we've met along the way and the stuff we've got wrong. You know, neither of us has... I mean, frankly, we've both, we've both made some fairly... Um, <laughs> Well, how can I put it? Not everything's gone perfectly. Darling, we've taken, some, we've taken some tight corners. <laughs> and, and some creative risks. Well, thank you so much for sharing them with us because I just think it's so much more real and compelling to hear people talk honestly about life, especially in like this Instagram age where you just see these like polished versions of people um, pr- constantly pretending that they're winning at everything. And I think that that's probably the beauty of Fortunately, your podcast as well, really, because it feels to me when I listen to it that I'm just overhearing two friends at the kitchen table having a chat. And over the course of listening, it feels as if you become our friends. And it's just translated so well into the book, which is really impressive. No, it's really kind of you to say, but I do think we are different people. We think differently. We've got different life stories, different um, different views. You know, I don't, funnily enough, I don't agree with everything she says. The plain fact <laughs> is, V still hasn't understood that she's often wrong and that um, she needs to grasp that. And the funny thing is, I'm more often wrong when I'm in the company of Jane. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas a lot of the time when I'm not, I think it's okay. But that's the thing we all love about your podcast. 
podcast as well as the book is is the fact there's that ongoing banter between the two of you and you're correcting each other and it did feel like you were reading the book to us could just hear your voices well it's very kind of you to say so you start the book you know those sections describing you know what identity and belonging meant for you Jane you know the Liverpool connections for Fee what it meant for you in terms of you know Slough there's this beautiful kind of north-south divide and you know what I was interested in you know from a food perspective is in terms of identity and belonging from your different respective kind of upbringings what did food look like for you growing up? I had quite a strange childhood that was completely normal to me as everybody's is uh, where my dad left to go and work in Hong Kong when I was quite small when I was about four years old and we went over there and lived there for a couple of years and then came back to go to school in this country my mum came back too so we had a really split upbringing actually where part of the time we're in rural Hampshire in a hamlet that was so tiny, there was a post box. That was the kind of communal thing. There wasn't a pub, there wasn't a shop, there wasn't anything else. It was a post box. God, we gathered round it. Uh, so, <laughs> so food was actually a completely different thing in one part of my life with my mum to how it was, you know, when we, when we went to Hong Kong to see my dad. My mum remains to this day a superb and dedicated gardener. And looking back on it, we had a an idyllic life on a plate, actually, as kids with her. There was always something that had just come out of the ground. What kind of stuff was she growing? Oh, gosh, everything. So she had a a, a really big vegetable patch. There were always raspberry canes, runner beans, black currants, all of those soft fruits. Then all of the root vegetables would quite often be, you know, pulling up potatoes and stuff. Like that. And she just loved it. And also she was uh, what what it you know, seems now to be, I think you'd call it the, an early adopter of that way of cooking and growing and staying quite close to your food. So I, you know, I have to pinch myself sometimes that that was there because we just took it for granted. You know, that's just how it was. So my my grandparents were farmers as well. So I have really vivid memories. So we had like 10 dairy cows. I mean, for me, it really installed, I think, a love of of provenance and food. Did you feel like it did that for you, Fee? Well, I think it did, but it took a long time to come back, you know, as I think a lot of things from your childhood, you know, you you, you leave them behind and it's only maybe, uh, you know, 30, 40 years down the line, you think actually my my place in this, I recognise from a long time ago. So I've gone back to trying to cook. And, and in fact, I mean, I've always cooked, but I've gone back to try and cook in, in, in that kind of way. I'm a hopeless gardener, so I'm not even going to pretend that I'm growing my own stuff. But you're cooking more seasonally. Yes. Yeah. And I'm grateful to my mum, uh, you know, for, for doing all of that. But can I just throw in as well the caveat that we also had so much 70s rubbish <laughs> in our lives as well. So we were no stranger to butterscotch angel delight, reformed ham, primula spreads. And I love all that kind of stuff as well. You know, if, if it's just got kind of soft salt, sugar, and it's quite pale and there's not an awful lot to chew. I'm quite happy with that as a childhood memory as well. But what did you eat when you went to see your dad in Hong Kong then? Well, just completely different food. I mean, you know, Hong Kong is not a rural environment. So every single thing is brought in from somewhere else. So back in the 1970s, we had powdered milk. Uh, we had, I mean, there was quite a lot of fish. 
fishman used to come round on his motorbike and, you know, slap down various, to us, unidentifiable fishes and he'd get out his enormous machete and just chop the end off one. Uh, and, you know, you pay a couple of dollars from that, wrapped up in newspaper. I need to <laughs> confess, Fee, I had the same childhood. I grew up in Hong Kong and we moved, th- we moved there when we were four. So that fish man with a basket of fish coming round to your door yes. and slapping it down. Brilliant. And I always remember that fish because um, it had been skinned already expertly uh, and wrapped up in newspaper. And sometimes, even by the time it was served on the plate, it still had a hint of newsprint on it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but obviously we ate loads of, of Hong Kong Chinese food, you know, we would uh, we we went to far more restaurants than we would ever have gone to if we'd been back in the UK, and that's just the way it was. We lived in a you know small flat, it, you know you didn't do kind of entertain, you know that just wasn't a thing. So uh, you know we ate a, a lot of Chinese food, and to this day I I still love it, but I can't claim to cook that, and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't dare to. So that's my odd childhood mix. So I grew up um, in Liverpool, as I discuss in the book. My mum is a good cook. She's still a good cook. I've got incredibly fond memories of the cooking provided by both gr- my grandmothers. My my grandma, Garvey, was just the most fanta- fantastic baker. And she made the greatest gravy on God's earth. I mean, I, I don't know how she did it. I don't know what was in it. But I will always remember Grand Garvey's gravy. And she also used to make really exquisite butterfly cream fairy cakes. That was the sort of high point of our Sunday afternoon, very traditional tea. And we used to go to the Garvey grandparents every single Sunday. And my mum's family, the O'Neills, they, my nan, my nana O'Neill was also a great cook. And she would, well, I've got such good memories of Sunday lunch around at the O'Neills because my grandparents would sit at either end of the, what seemed to me this really long table. And my gran would all, my nana rather, would always struggle because she had false teeth with, with the, with the meat. And so she had an obsession with whether or not the, the joint was tough or not. <laughs> and um, she'd always cooked it, I should say. But uh, so she, I can hear her now saying, oh, Jim, that was my granddad. Jim, Jim, I can't eat this. It's too tough. How are the children going to manage? And, and he'd just say, oh, shut up, Mary, this is your teeth. <laughs> What do you always have on your shelves? My household has changed. So I've got one daughter at university, one who's been to university and is now back home. And they are, the eldest daughter is a vegan. The youngest is a vegetarian with an occasional fish habit. Is it enforced on you, veggie veganism? Yeah, I suppose at home it, it is. I, I, enforced seems okay. a bit too Enforced strong. is a strong word, Alison. Um, okay, if, if I have, no, no, I know exactly what you mean. When I'm out, do you have a I will often... Well, not, you know, interestingly, um, I am not, not that interested in red meat anymore. Well, I think it is an interesting point, though. I think that a lot of people are probably navigating now. And by a lot of people, I kind of meet myself because I started dating a vegan this year. And I say, I, mean, I should probably shouldn't phrase it in that way. Um, <laughs> it sounds um, like we, the title we, of a we, fantastic we, book. Yeah. I started dating but, a um, vegan. But it was really interesting. And obviously, we're, you know, it, we're, we're happily together now, but in, in the early months, I, you know, was not shy of kind of talking about it. It was, I was really, I found it really challenging because I'm a food writer and I love all kinds of food and I'm an omnivore and I kind of try and eat good meat, good quality meat and not a lot of it, but I certainly don't have an issue with it. And it, anyway, I feel like as increasingly more and more people are, are vegetarian or vegan and, and, you know, I, I think it's interesting. I think what's happening in people's homes around this at the moment and, and how, yeah, how I do think 
is leading to kind of a lot of our kitchens changing, I think. And I don't think that's a bad thing, you know, at all, but it's it can be tricky to navigate. I mean, my 21-year-old is a very... Uh, I've just I was going to say she's a successful vegan. She she could she literally looks the picture of health. So who am I to argue? I have to say now she mostly cooks for herself. It's less of a faff for me than it was. Do you then, as a household? Because I grew up, it was very important in our house and for me culturally, actually, to, for everybody to be eating the same food because. There was this sense of, I think it's an anthropological thing as well, that when you share the same meal, you kind of bond. And so we would have these debates. Are you like in your house, do you do you all eat different things sometimes? Is there an, an effort made to all eat the same thing? Does this even matter? I, I definitely think it matters. And I love the idea of the three of us eating together. And we do sometimes, but increasingly, you know, the eldest one is working. The youngest one is, isn't here a lot of the time now. I'm working much more than I used to, in fact, when they were younger. So, and then there's Deliveroo. I'm not going to pretend we don't get, <laughs> we don't get Deliveroo because we absolutely do. I'm, um, I'm actually cooking just for myself tonight and I've got myself a nice piece of fish and I'm going to thoroughly enjoy it. But to go back to the question about what we've always got in at the moment we've always got in chickpeas baked beans tins of borlotti beans cannellini beans mixed beans we're big on beans uh tins of tomatoes pasta rice and i'm just a cheese cheeseaholic so we i've always got i've got blue cheese cheddar cheese what else do we always have in Having a combination of beans in the house, if they're in the tins, they're just so easy to just pop into so many different dishes. I love beans. What about you, Fee? What do you always have in your fridge or cupboards just for go-to dinners? Gosh, for go-to dinners. So I've got an experimenting vegetarian teenager oh. and an omnivore teenager. And one of them is a really, really keen cook already. Brilliant. Uh, which I'm incredibly grateful for. So it does mean that our fridge is uh, a joyful kaleidoscope of oddness <laughs> on any given day because it contains things that have been cooked or waiting to be cooked. Oh, my goodness. Uh, one thing that I think many parents of teenagers will identify with is the shelf that just becomes the saucer's shelf. Yep. So I don't remember in my childhood having more than two types of sauce. There was a bottle of ketchup and a bottle of salad cream, wasn't there? But now there's a whole, <laughs> I mean, no, no exaggeration. There are probably 20 different bottles, nozzles, jars of sauces. You know, that seems to have hoved into view. So that's always there. And actually, you can cheer up the dullest of bean-based meals uh, with a, you know, a good old dollop of uh, sriracha or peri-peri on top. There's this bit in the book where you talk about your relationship fee with your deep fat fryer, uh, but you don't really expand on it. So I thought, I know, I'll get the scoop. I'll get the scoop of the interview that you're doing on the book. So tell me about your deep fat fryer. Well, I'm just going to be really honest with you. Uh, a deep fat fryer was a frowned upon thing in my childhood. So sometimes we would have uh, a piece of fried food, but it was a really special mm -hmm. treat. <laughs> and the idea that you would have on your kitchen surface a permanent item, which you could just pop something into and it would come out gorgeous and bad for you. That wasn't going to happen. So I resisted having a deep fat fryer until about uh, two years ago. I bought a mini one uh, and we've never looked back. Give me your top three fried things that go in oh, the fryer. Okay. Mars bars? <laughs> no. So actually, we did try doing donuts once and that needs a bit of work. 
that needs a bit of work because that because you still got to do something with that. I'm not a baker. You got to do something with that to make them light and fluffy. They were like golf balls. Alison, have you got any tips? Any any donut making tips? It's just patience, I think, just to make sure that it rises properly and then really hot. Yeah, I've got no patience, so that's that didn't happen at all. But my top three would be uh, halloumi sticks. Nice. I mean, Ooh, simplest thing yes. in the world: dusting of flour, dusting of paprika, shove them in. I mean, they're just wonderful, aren't they? It's so naughty. Can't beat fried so cheese. Oh, naughty fried cheese. Um, uh, I am in search of the perfect chicken schnitzel. I haven't mm. managed to, to do one yet because it's a mini fryer. I mean, really stop me when this gets too dull, but it's <laughs> the, the secret, I think, of any kind of schnitzel is to have quite a thin meat, isn't it? Because yeah. otherwise it's just uh, burnt on the outside and still barely cooked on the inside. And it's problematic in a mini what about fryer. with mini fillets? Alison, are you heading towards the Goujon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yes, I am. I was just thinking it would fit in a mini fryer. So we we have tried. We have tried. And sometimes it's been, you know, very successful. It's, I mean, it is a bit, it, it is a bit hit and miss. Um, and uh, God, what would the third one be? I mean, you know, we just put anything in breadcrumbs and, and shove it in. But I think actually sweet potato fries, whenever you buy them in frozen form, uh, I've not seen them just in raw form. So I've only bought them frozen. I challenge anyone to cook a an even plate of sweet potato fries. They're just burnt around the edges of the oven dish and not properly cooked in the middle. So a deep fat sweet potato fry is also a thing of wonder. Oh, that sounds like delicious snack food, which I want to ask you about more in a minute, actually, because I'm always fascinated by what people's writing snacks are. But first, tell me about your writing process. How did you actually put the book together? Well, we wrote it. uh, I left Woman's Hour at the end of last year, so the end of 2020. And um, and we were in lockdown at the time and we stayed that way, didn't we? For the, I think the whole of, I've, I've so lost track of things, but the whole of January, February and March. And we dedicated that time to writing this. I think Fee was doing other stuff, but I wasn't really doing very much else at the time. And so we wanted to write a book that um, sort of followed the format of the podcast in that we've never discussed before, in addition of fortunately, what we're going to talk about Unfortunately. So um, we might, I, I might jot something down that I'd like to mention to Fee, but I wouldn't tell her because that just feels like that just feels like too close to structured radio, which is exactly what it isn't ever meant to be. So we thought we could write a book and we'd each write a chapter about something that interested us, but we wouldn't tell the other what it was really. We'd write about two thousand words, whatever it was, two and a half thousand, ping them over, and Fee, you came up with the idea that we should cross over. And send each other something. It was at nine o'clock on a Monday morning. That was it, wasn't it? Yes. And between nine and ten. It had to be okay. there by ten. To be exact. Wow. And then the other one would read what the other one had written and then write a response. And we don't, I mean, there's th- things I feel strongly about that probably, I mean, I am obsessed by Christmas, which I think Fee feels <laughs> less invested in. Um, and there are other things that, frankly, her trip to that ri- ridiculous wellness institute is something <laughs> that I would never have undertaken. Um, but I enjoy hearing about her doing it. So I, I, it was it was written in that sort of spirit that we would try to be true to ourselves and completely honest about our own experiences of of the world. Yeah, and it would have been uh, misrepresenting both of us if we'd tried to uh, tell anybody what to do with their lives because ours are lives filled with, uh, you know, I suppose, 
pretty much the same as everybody else's triumph and tragedy. Uh, sometimes it doesn't feel like an equal measure and sometimes it does. And, and, and we really don't want to lecture other people about how they should live. Uh, and I enjoy finding out about things that Jane has done because the way that she tells those stories is always with a, uh, an honesty and authenticity, you know, that's just, it's just helpful. What fueled you writing the book? What were your writing snacks? Oh, gosh. Well, you see, I have to write first thing in the morning. I have to to write when it falls out of my head. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm quite a, a lark anyway. So I would write uh, not having eaten anything at all. What about a coffee or anything like that? A huge pot of coffee. I mean, a, you know, a big, bigger than the biggest extra extra super one that you can get in a coffee shop I think they should. an American size an American size cup, one so, so if I had my way in a coffee shop there would be all of those sizes and then there would be jangling because that's what I want I want a pint of coffee that makes me jangle and what about you Jane what are your writing snacks well I, I wouldn't I do snack I was going to say I snack terribly, but I, I, I am actually really aware as I get older that, you know, food has always given me such pleasure and I love eating and I love appreciating other people's great cooking. I love eating out. I just love food. I love textures. I love smells, tastes. Um, my children are, you know, vegan and vegetarian, but they both love food as well. And, um, and as of both, both families, their dad's family and my family are full of people who are good cooks and appreciate fine foods. So that's, we're very, very fortunate. Um, I couldn't work on an empty stomach, I don't think. So and for breakfast every day, I either have, uh, the five berry yogurt bowl from a well-known very much on every high street corner emporium with a french name because i like to do the thing as recommended by michael mosley of getting up in the morning and doing your first thing in the morning walk before you do very much else and in in lockdown i would go as far as to say that that probably contributed to my ongoing relative sanity and it is all relative that's what i aspire to do every day i mean so i don't do it every single day I, I for whatever reason couldn't quite get out of my bed this morning to do it but i wish i had actually because i think it was a beautiful morning today um it just in lockdown it played such it really did help me um and i just felt calmer and somehow sort of restored so but I was always, I, I do need to eat three times a day. And I've been like this my entire life. And I do not understand people who say things like, I forgot to eat. <laughs> and I just think, well, why would you forget to eat? Because it, 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 as soon as it gets do to they 12, say it in that voice because they're so weak with hunger? I think they're just They've so hungry. Yeah, they are. They're just worn out. So there wasn't anything specifically then that was, you know, because some writers need, I don't know, I was a big chocolate hobnobs fan for my first book. I just, I was fueled by do that. you know, Yasmin, I can do without biscuits. Oh, can you? Yes, Interesting. I not. Right. They are not my thing. Um, never been but, keen on biscuits. But into the void left by the biscuit does fall the chili nuts, the oh. enormous giant buttons, mm. peanuts. I love peanuts. The mini uh, magnums. Quite yes. a few things going. Oh no! I'm, I'm like I say. There's plenty I enjoy. <laughs> biscuits, I can say no to. I'd 
love to talk to you a bit more about Fortunately, which is just a phenomenon, isn't it? You know, I think like Jane, I was listening to you on Elizabeth Day's podcast where you described it as one of your proudest achievements in your working life. And I found that really extraordinary. I'm not going to call you a BBC veteran, but as someone who's kind of done a lot of, of broadcast work on very high profile, you know, national shows, talk to me a little bit about why actually from both of you, you know, your, why you think you know you felt so proud about fortunately and why it's been so special for you I think it, it means the most because we we did it ourselves we, it wasn't from there was no huge backing I mean with the greatest respect to, to Woman's Hour it's the program that people love and identify with it was never the presenters I mean Je- Jenny Murray did it for for decades and so perhaps she's a slightly different case but uh, w- with me I was always aware and I really don't get me wrong I really rate myself I really <laughs> I thought I was quite good but um it was uh, to my annoyance possibly it was never about me it was about woman's hour and people are still listening to it in their millions and and I'm so glad about that and they always will and I'm really proud to have been a part of it but I was only ever going to be a part of it and a tiny part of the history of something that has been going now for 75 years. So that was one thing. Five Live before that, I was really proud of that because that started, well, you know, I was the first voice on that network. But again, it was, I was a small part of a huge organisation with a tremendous amount of backing and a lot of goodwill from the BBC who wanted it to succeed. Two middle-aged women starting a podcast talking to each other about anything that came into their heads with no great interest from the bosses, no enormous bandwagon of publicity behind it, no PR machine. To make a success of that, frankly, is a bit of an achievement. And you would agree with that, wouldn't you, Fee? That when nobody apart from us has given it any publicity, really. It was just that wonderful feeling as well, which I'm not sure you get more than once in a, a career, uh, where you can you can smell the magic of it. You know, we just knew that we were building an audience, which is such a kind of ghastly, you know, shall we sit in meeting room one at 3.30 and discuss building an audience? Uh, and, and But but I really mean it. You know, we started off with not a single listener. That's the thing about podcasts. So you don't walk into a studio, you know, and because, you know, you, 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 you pick up a, an audience from Nikki Campbell and you're going onto an audience with Martha Carney, you know, there's, there isn't anything. There was absolutely no, uh, uh, tripwire at all for us. So we just had no audience. And then from no audience, I think we're currently on 22 million downloads. It's amazing. It's because people joined in the fun and it's been fun. That's the other thing about it, which is not to say that other jobs, that I've done haven't been fun. And I'm sure Jane would say the same. It's a glorious industry to work in. Uh, it really is actually. But this is just our own work. You know, we were given a, a, a kind of dusty Lego set that nobody else really wanted to play with. And we built something with it. So our audience have shaped what our podcast is because we really didn't know what it was when we started. But because they've joined in and they send us their funny emails and they understand what we're talking about. And during lockdown, I don't say this in a pretentious way, but it properly had a sense of, uh, of being needed actually, because we were all going mad. We were going mad. I was at home on my own with the two kids and Jane, you know, is on her own with one coming in and out and one full time there. Nobody had the faintest idea what was going to happen. 
we were just in this ship. It was bumpy and nasty. And we had a sense, I think, didn't we, Jane, that uh, we weren't alone and that people were appreciating the fact that we could tell them that. So, I mean, that you know, that sounds a bit kind of uh, pompous, but it really did help, actually. It really, really did help. I'm speaking to somebody who spent lockdown in a house on their own, you know, all of or most of 2020. Your podcast each week was just brilliant to know, oh, there are other people that are thinking the same as me and kind of, you know, talking about your hair getting out of control and that kind of thing. It was fantastic. So that's so lovely to hear, Alison, yeah, because I think... You know, the, the, the loneliness of those lockdowns was just so hard to tell people about, wasn't it? Because who, who was listening? I mean, that's the point. If you're on your own in your house, who was listening? No one was listening. And also you couldn't listen to the news because that just made it worse. So that's why your podcast was just like, Oh, it's going to be normal. It's going to be nice. But at the same time, it's going to be real. And, uh, that's what we, everyone was craving. I think as well, um, I did, I am a fanatical radio listener and I love live radio. And so I was listening throughout the lockdowns to my colleagues, some people, you know, on Five Live or my friends who, who I was listening to, Rachel Burden, for example. And I really admired her, for example, for keeping going, keeping sounding chipper. And I know she's got four kids. She's got a mum and dad to worry about. She's got all sorts of things going on. But she, what she, what we could do, but she couldn't, she couldn't express her fears. She had to be that calm, come on, kind of galvanising. Yes, let's get through another day together. Whereas Fee and I on the podcast, it was a place of safety for us to say, you know what, I've had a really bad week and this has happened and I feel this. And um, and I, I never knew during that time, I'm sure like you, who to be most worried about. My mum and dad, mm. who I couldn't see hundreds of miles away. Uh, my children, who were missing out on so much stuff and missing their friends and um, all myself, frankly, some of the time I just think, oh, I can't do this anymore. You know, I'd be wandering the streets looking for toilet roll. It wasn't a barrel of laughs. Well, what I find fascinating about that is that you launched that podcast pretty much off your own bats, didn't you? But now the BBC seems to be really behind it, which I guess you must take as a real testament to your ideas and your hard work. It was always a BBC project. It was a BBC podcast. And I think um, that they just weren't particularly interested in it. I mean, I've, I've, sa- I've said it before that I don't, I think there's a problem probably high up in all parts of the media where men rate other men and women at the top have had a tendency to also rate men ahead of women. So I've always said, I've never pretended that women are not complicit in this to a degree and possibly because they don't even know they're doing it uh, or their own sort of, What's the expression? Their unconscious, subconscious misogyny plays a part in them just not treating women in quite the same way as they would treat men. So, I mean, this is sounding very pompous and serious, but I think uh, the powers that be at Radio 4 are probably still a bit mystified by fortunately, still not really sure what it is or who's engaged by it or why they are. So it does now appear on the network, although both V and I find it hugely embarrassing. And if I ever find myself catching it, I turn it off because <laughs> I just think, oh, I switch myself this? off very, very quickly. Just to pick up on what you said, Jane, uh, just because I do think this is something that probably a lot of people associate with with both of you. Um, I mean, you have been, you know, really outspoken at times in the last few years around some of the, the challenges of being a woman working at the BBC. I mean, I'm just fascinated to know, do you feel 
as a result of, I don't know, Samira Ahmed's case and lots of other women speaking out, do you feel like the culture is changing or has changed? Oh, I think I think it has. I think up to a point. I mean, it's never going to be perfect. And of course, we should say that the BBC is a great organisation in many ways. Uh, for a start, I'm still employed by them, <laughs> um, in spite of the fact that I have been outspoken about the issue of the equal pay um, issue at the BBC. It was never the worst employer in the world. And lots of other media organisations delighted in reporting on the uh, equal pay problem at the BBC, whilst failing to acknowledge their own problems in that area. Um, so, le- you know, let's be absolutely clear about this. It's it's a problem across the known world. <laughs> so certainly not restricted to the BBC. And our reason for doing it with, with BBC women was always to basically say quite clearly, if this is how privileged women are being treated, and we are privileged, how do you imagine women in less privileged environments are being treated? And I just can't, I, I just think along with a lot of other middle-aged women, I just couldn't bear the fact that this same issue might be impacting on my daughters in 25 years time. And I've had opportunities that my mother and my grandmothers could never have dreamt of. But I still think that Fee and I are probably members of a generation that has had the opportunities and we've had incredible opportunities, but we haven't had the same remuneration. And we just haven't. And we we will, I'm afraid we will die not having been as well paid as some of our male contemporaries. It's time for our kitchen grill quickfire round. Please answer spontaneously, but please feel free to elaborate. Yes. Tea or coffee? Uh, first thing in the morning, I have two mugs, and it's always two mugs, and I'm not in a rut, of uh, tea. Uh, and then my next beverage will be a flat white. What kind of milk? Cow's milk, skimmed, and a sweetener, but not in coffee, just in the tea. So specific. Uh, I don't drink tea. Jane finds this really, really difficult. It might actually be the the sign that I'm an mm. alien. Uh, so it's always coffee and just way, way too much of it in the morning. <laughs> so it has to be super strong uh, and it is just with a normal cow's milk and it always has uh, quite a heaped teaspoon of brown sugar in it. Oh, nice. How about mash or chips? Mash. Fried or poached? Mm. Fried. Fried. Right. something you agree on. Butter or olive oil? <laughs> Butter. Oh, that's really tough. Can I not have both? No. Uh, do you know what? I just really do like a good olive oil. I just, I, I don't want to be ashamed nice. to say that. Sometimes, sometimes in, in your supermarket, your Waitrose supermarket, I can be lost in wonder in your olive oil section. There's quite a choice. Yep. And much more so than I would be in your butter section, actually. So I'm going to go good. olive oil. Uh, chocolate or crisps? Ooh. <laughs> Nuts. Okay. Crisps and a lot of them. Fruit or veg? You look, can I just say, Fee actually grimaced at this <laughs> this question. <laughs> Not after your mum's upbringing of all that freshly... Oh, so, yeah, it would always be veg. I really struggle with fruit. I really do. I find it... Um, I find that kind of... Uh, yeah, I find some of it a bit offensive, so always a vegetable. Is it it's acidic? The, it's the Is acid. It the acid? Not, Not sweet enough. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have an apple a day now, which I thoroughly enjoy. Um, other than that, I yeah, I have the old broccoli spear. I'm also a big fan of um, of spinach. I, I do like spinach. I'll often choose spinach as my uh, side dish in restaurants mm, when I'm having my chicken. She's like ever so cultured now. <laughs> yeah. you know, she's really left chicken and she's left the roots behind her. <laughs> Love it. Spicy or mild? 
hot, spicy. Good. A restaurant meal or a sofa supper? Oh, at the moment, restaurant. I don't want to see my sofa (laughs) ever again. You know, people always say that sofas have an indentation of your buttocks Mm. in them. My buttocks have an indentation of my sofa after the pandemic and I'm not going to go. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Starter or pudding? Oh, now it used to always be pudding. But I'm more of a starter woman these days. Definitely a starter. N- not a big fan of the pudding at all. And high tech or wooden spoon? I'd class your deep fat fryer as high tech, not a wooden spoon. <laughs> um, I'll have to say, but I can't choose, I'm afraid. I, I really can't. That's a tough one. Uh, so Three. I would go high tech because actually we've got a kind of gadget. Uh, we've got a gadget graveyard uh, that uh, that attests to my love of the gadget purchase. The worst one was a waffle lollipop maker. A waffle lollipop maker. Love yeah. it. So it didn't make waffles. It just made waffle pops. So that was infuriating on every level. Yeah. yeah. Because I think you want a waffle pop once in your life. So what were you supposed to cook it and then put a stick in as it was cooking? Yeah. So it's a special little machine that you, you know, you dribbled the waffle mixture in and then uh, you put your little wooden sticks in. You know, like the the flattened yeah, yeah, kebab yeah, yeah. ones. You put those in and then you shut the lid and it made waffle pops. Okay. But nobody in our household has ever subsequently said, Mom, <laughs> go and have a waffle pop. <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh, I love it. Well, thank you for that quick fire round. Um, it certainly broadened my understanding of high tech cooking equipment. And thank you so much for joining us. I'm holding your book again as a kind of reminder to myself and to remind to everyone listening to go and get a copy. It's called Did I Say That Out Loud? V and Jane, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me and Alison. It's been a real pleasure having you on the Waitrose podcast. Thank you, Yasmin. And thank you, Alison. Thank you very much. Lovely to see you both. You've been listening to Life on a Plate from Waitrose with me, Yasmin Khan. Thank you to my co-host, Alison Okavy, and our guests, Fee Glover and Jane Garvey. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can find more like it by subscribing to Life on a Plate wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about the series, go visit waitrose.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>